blessing and encouragement that was. Um, I didn't feel like I could do it justice, and so I'm glad that, Caleb, you were able to come up and do that. I'm a little OCD, so I'm I'm moving this. hope you don't mind. Um, I'll stand on this this gap right here, and it would drive me nuts all day. So um, uh, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be looking at just two verses this morning, verses 12 and 13, and you can find it on page 1003 in the Pew Bibles. Now, unlike our passage last week, this morning's text is straightforward and simple and probably familiar to most of you, but I pray that it's not so familiar that it would be emptied of its power. I pray, actually, that you will be prepped for surgery. Our passage this morning is is about the precise and powerful discerning ability of the Word of God, a superior discernment that we all so desperately need, that we ought to be so thankful for, far more discerning than our own reason, our own intellect, or popular opinion, or maybe the ways that we have been raised. We need the Word of God to perform surgery on our hearts. If you think about it, if your life was on the line, you would not take a cleaver to your chest, nor would you turn your attention to the lumberjack with his chainsaw. If you had need of surgery, you would find the best physician possible with the most knowledge and experience in matters of the heart, with the best tools and resources at his disposal so that with each and every incision that he makes, though from it flow blood and pain, you know that with each and every cut, he is giving life. That's what I want for us this morning when we come to God's Word. That we are prepped for surgery, and that we are trusting in our great physician, Jesus Christ, who knows our hearts perfectly and is able to give life from every single incision. May we not walk out of here thinking that God's Word stabs at our hearts as a murderer seeking to condemn, but as our good and faithful surgeon who opens us up so that we might have life in His name. What we're going to see from our text this morning, Hebrews 12 and 13, is that the living Word of God perfectly exposes our hearts. As God's perfect revelation, both verbal and incarnate acts, it performs surgery on our souls, revealing the inclinations of our hearts, reckoning us either for death or for life. But either way, it is always effective. Either way, it never returns to God void because the living Word of God perfectly exposes our hearts. And may it bring life to our souls this morning as we read Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. It says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, But all are naked 
and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The living word of God perfectly exposes our hearts. I just want to break that statement down into two parts this morning. And so first, the living word of God. Now, most people who accept, at least in principle, the existence of a God would also accept to some degree that the Word of God reveals God to us, though they might disagree on how exactly it reveals God. There are some who would say, well, what we have in our Bibles are really just the words of men about God. Right? So they might reveal some truths about him as, as a man is seeking to describe that which is beyond his comprehension, beyond his ability to truly understand. It might say some truths from their own vantage point or experience, but we don't have the full picture. We don't have uh, all understanding. There may be misunderstandings or misperceptions in the way that they're communicating. Still others might say that, well, Jesus Christ is the Word of God. And so everything that Scripture says about Him, that's the true Word of God. But other things that it says are not. And so we have to figure out what does it say about Jesus and what is it not. Still others might say that these are the words of men, but as we read Scripture with spiritual eyes, the Holy Spirit does a work in our hearts and in our lives so that through that experience, as we're reading, as we're sitting before the Lord, it actually becomes the Word of God. These words of men, as the Holy Spirit does this work, makes them become the Word of God. Still others like us would say that each word of Scripture that we have been given in our Bibles, were given by inspiration of God, spoken, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, so that what Scripture says, God says. That the very nature, character, and authority of God cannot be separated in any way from His Word. And if we are going to know anything about Him or about ourselves, that revelation, that understanding must come from him. That we can no more reason or discern from ourselves to God than we could reason or discern from a leaf to God. Both Descartes and Mother Nature are flawed. Nor could we discern our own way from a single evil deed to our own need of the cross of Christ. If we are going to have any true knowledge, if we are going to have any true understanding, if we are going to have any true discernment of God, of ourselves, or of the world around us, we need God's revelation. We need God to speak. God must reveal Himself to us in order for us to understand who He is, who we are, and why on earth we're even here. We need a superior discernment than our own intellect than our own logical faculties, than our own imagination. So it's important that we consider what the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has to say about the revelation of God in His Word. 
In fact, Hebrews is one of the best books that we can turn to in order to understand the doctrine of the Word of God. It is absolutely thick throughout this book. And that's why liberal scholars want to dismiss it because the author goes unnamed. Well, actually, that's not true. Hebrews does tell us who the author is. The author is God. And at risk of oversimplification, let me just sum up what Hebrews says about the Word of God to you in three words. And I did this for kids, right? So the kids can understand what does the Scripture say about the Word of God. It says the Word of God is spoken, the Word of God is written, and the Word of God is Jesus. And it has to be all three of those. It can't be one of those or two of those. It has to be all three. The Word of God is spoken, the Word of God is written, the Word of God is Jesus. I want you to see this from Hebrews, so flip back just a page or two to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And so there we see God has spoken. God has spoken by the prophets, right? We have their words in writing, and God has spoken to us by His Son. Right? Spoken, written, Jesus. If you keep going, Jesus is the perfect revelation of God, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. That He Himself is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And then after making purification for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior as the name that He has received is more excellent than theirs. As we keep going in in chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, it talks about how the Son of God is superior to angels. Now, you've got to ask yourself, what are angels? Angels are heavenly spirits who serve as messengers of God. Literally, that's what angel means, messenger. And what was the message that they proclaimed? What did they herald? They heralded the Word of God. And so then... The author of Hebrews quotes seven written passages of Scripture as God's own verbal foretold testimony that His Son is superior to these heavenly messengers. It reads, God says. And then in verses 5, 6, 7, 8, and 13. And then he quotes from Psalm 2. 2 Samuel 7, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 104, Psalm 145, Isaiah 61, Psalm 102, and Psalm 110. And so God said in His written word of the superiority of His Son. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we are warned to pay closer attention to what we have heard, the word that has been spoken to us, lest we drift away from Jesus. The message that has been written, that has been proclaimed by angels, that has been declared by the Lord, that has been attested to us by those who have heard as God himself bore signs and wonders to verify its truthfulness and power. In chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, We have God testifying, then a written quote from Psalm 8 about the lordship of Jesus. In chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, God says from uh, Psalm 22 and from Isaiah 8, so that we might better understand why it was necessary that the Son of God become like us, His brothers, in every respect, yet without sin. 
In chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, God declares that Jesus is superior to Moses. And what does Moses represent? Moses represents the Old Testament law, the written law. In chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, the Holy Spirit says, and then it quotes from Psalm 95, and is then applied to its hearers, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Don't find yourself unbelieving. Unbelieving in what? Unbelieving in Jesus. And then last week in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we were told 10 different times in 10 different ways how God has spoken through his written word concerning his son. God has promised. He has given us the, his message of, of the good news, but we must listen to his voice. Otherwise, we will have no rest in Jesus. And then one more point about that passage that I, I wasn't able to get to last time. You notice in verse 8 that it says that the rest that we have in Christ is superior to the rest that was given by Joshua. Now, Hebrew t- tradition would say that Joshua is where the prophets began. So not only was Jesus superior to Moses, the law, but Jesus is also superior to Joshua, the prophets. Summing up all of the Old Testament, law and prophets, saying Jesus is superior because he is the fulfillment of them all. And so if we put it all together, we see that Hebrews has been teaching us throughout that God's word is spoken, God's word is written, God's word is Jesus. It is to be received, it is to be heard, it is to be heeded, it is to be obeyed, it is to be trusted in for salvation. And so if you're here this morning and you've ever wrestled with with the exact nature of God's special and specific revelation given through His Word, I would encourage you to pour over the book of Hebrews. Slowly go back through and unpack and, and look at what it actually has to say about itself. Because over and over and over and over again, it will declare that God's word is spoken, God's word is written, God's word is Jesus. Now, all of that is in the background and is necessary for us to look at because it comes to bear on what we're reading this morning in our text. It gives us a completer a more complete picture, a better understanding of how we should approach God's Word. And our passage begins with that word for. It's giving a reason for verse 11, why we should strive, why we should be diligent to enter God's rest through Jesus so that no one may fall into the same sort of disobedience. What he's saying is, look, if you don't get the Word right then you are going to fall into the same sort of disobedience, the same sort of unbelief, even if you might have a very, very defined, very specific belief system, and that belief system may include Jesus. It doesn't, if it doesn't align with the Word of God, if you are not trusting in God's spoken, God's written, God's incarnate revelation of Himself in Jesus, it is unbelief, it is disobedience, 
And this is at the very end of this extended large warning that we've been looking at since chapter 3 verse 1 in which we are to take care lest there be in any one of us an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God. And as an example, he gave from Scripture the Israelites in the wilderness, quoting from Psalm 95, and that was about a people who had God's Word, a people who had personally experienced God's revelation, a people who themselves had been delivered from Egypt, from slavery by God, and yet they did not hear His voice. And so he ends this warning by saying, for the Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We need a greater discernment than having a theologically correct belief system. We need God's Word to discern our hearts. The Word of God is living. And in the context of this warning, that living quality is not based upon the resurrection or ascension of Jesus, but on Psalm 95, because that's what it's been quoting from. God's written Word given some 3,000 years ago, calling us all to hear God's voice today. Friends, do you realize that what we have here are not ancient dead words from ancient dead men? That though this is an ancient text, it is still very much alive and well because its author is alive and well. That God is still speaking. And not just to them who lived a long way off, a long time ago, but to us here and now. That's why the author of Hebrews quoted from Psalm 95 repeatedly and three times says to us, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today, if you hear His voice. Today, if you hear His voice. When we come to the Word, it's living because our living God is speaking. And I'm just curious, is that the way that you approach Scripture? Is that the way that you come to the Word of God? With that kind of expectancy, with that kind of anticipation, with that kind of eagerness? Are are you coming in your quiet times when you or when you sit down with your friends, or, or in your community group, or, or when the Word of God is preached as we gather together, are you expecting to hear from God? Do you believe that He's speaking? Or is this just a part of your reading list, no more living than Homer's Iliad, or the newspaper, or your favorite recipe book, or the most recent Facebook updates? Do you come with eager ears ready to hear from God? Do we not sing the song, Speak, O Lord? Let us receive the food of your holy 
word do we mean what we sing? Are we looking forward to hearing from His imperishable living and abiding word that gives life to our souls? Because if not, then we have missed a foundational truth that is fundamentally necessary for the salvation of your soul. That God's word is living. If God has spoken so clearly to his people, then it is a mistake to suppose that man can trifle with such a word. It is alive, and that is how we must approach it. God lives, therefore Scripture lives. God speaks, therefore Scripture speaks. God is at work, therefore His Word is at work. Because the Word of God is not only living, it is active, it's effective, it's powerful, it's dynamic. It will accomplish all of God's purposes. Guys, we read the stories, but do we actually believe them? Right? We read about creation, how God spoke and worlds were formed. How when God speaks, everything that was made was made. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God's Word has the power to heal, has the power to deliver, has the power to restore, to save, to redeem, to forgive, to bring us into eternal glory? Do we believe that God's Word has resulted in signs and wonders. And that even when it is mocked, God's word is effective in judgment. That's why God says in Isaiah 55, My word that comes from my mouth shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That even when it seems to come back empty, it's not, because God has purposed it. It will never fail to accomplish all of God's purposes perfectly in His own timing and in His own way. And friends, if God's Word is effective, what are we doing if we neglect it? When we don't open it, when we don't turn to it? Who, at that point, do we really believe is effective? God or us? What are we doing in our worship gatherings when we remove the living and effective Word of God to rely upon music or lighting or storytelling? What are we actually believing is more affecting for our worship of God? Is it His Word or is it our performance? I'm not saying that to say, well, we shouldn't have music. I think we should. I think we should do it to the glory of God. We should do it with excellence. But that's not the point because, I mean, God calls us to do that in His Word. So we should do that. We should sing the Word to each other. But it should not replace the Word of God. I mean, think about it. If you had the option to eat food or eat dust, which would you choose? 
But so often we grab our shovels and go to the backyard rather than sitting at the Lord's table. Why do we listen to so many other voices more than His? What do we actually believe to be most discerning? I kept thinking about this. Like, why? Why do we so neglect this word? And I landed on the answer that came from the text. There's lots of answers I could give, but the one that came from the text, I'm just going to stay there, is because we really don't like the way in which God's Word is living, abiding, and effective. Because verse 12 goes on to say that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, and of joint tomorrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That sounds painful, right? Big, sharp sword hacking at your soul. Sign me up, right? But that's not the point. The point is God's revelation performs surgery on our souls. That it is penetrating. And yes, that can hurt. And I know that this comes at the end of a warning. That Scripture is described as this sharp weapon. But that does not mean that God is wielding it in order to kill you. You see, they didn't have surgeons and scalpels and operating rooms in that day. So the author of Hebrews is kind of looking out at the tools available to them to find something which was most piercing, most penetrating, as a metaphor to describe just how deep God's Word can penetrate, can infiltrate, can invade the very core of our being. That it can get into places penetrate, pierce in ways that other things cannot. And that's why he describes this particular type of double-edged sword, that it can infiltrate the darkest recesses of our heart. It can invade the very core of our being, dividing and discerning that which was thought indivisible. The division of soul and of spirit, of joint and marrow, is not describing our nature that we have both soul and spirit. No, it's about the penetrating and, and piercing power of the Word of God to infiltrate our inner being. It gets inside us in, no, in ways that no human effort ever could. I mean, think about it. If a swordsman is, is, is holding a, a double-edged sword, can he make one swipe and divide joints and morrow from the bone? No, he can't. But guess what? God can. And that's the point. God's Word can penetrate in that way. That He can penetrate through the hardest heart to perfectly discern every thought and intention. That there is no fooling Him. There is no mocking Him. His Word has the power to pierce your very soul. You know, one of my favorite stories about the famous 18th century preacher George Whitfield is not actually so much about Whitfield himself, but, but about one of his antagonists, a man by the name of Thorpe. Now, Thorpe was a ruffian. Thorpe was a thug. He was a hooligan. And he and some friends of his started what they called the Hellfire Club 
in order to follow Whitfield around and mock him and deride him, try to throw him off his game, make a fool of himself, make a mockery and a ridicule of his ministry. So they would go from town to town, wherever George Whitfield was, and kind of try to stir it up to make a mess of, of what he's trying to do. Well, one night after, uh, at, at the pub, after a few too many drinks, Thorpe had obtained a copy of one of Whitfield's sermons, and he proceeded to act it out. Now, he's doing this to mock Whitfield. And apparently, he was rather good at imitations and, and pretty adept at, at mimicking Whitfield's inflection and mannerisms. And so he's there trying to scorn Whitfield. But in the middle of the sermon, God, the Word of God that he was mocking so pierced his heart that he suddenly had to stop and sit down, weeping and brokenhearted. And right then and right there, he confessed the truth of the gospel and he gave his heart to Christ. Now his aim had been to taunt and to ridicule, but the power of the Word of God penetrated his soul and cut him to the heart. And Thorpe ended up becoming a preacher himself and a very effective evangelist because he knew so well the power of the Word of God to penetrate hardened souls. That penetrating power of the living word pierces through the hardest hearts to perfectly discern every thought and every intention. He sees it all clearly. There's not one aspect of your being, one aspect of your mind, one aspect of, of your greatest longing that he does not know perfectly. The surgery that he performs is exact, and he does so not to kill, but to give life. Now, yes, he is the judge, and yes, we must stand before him. And yes, when we stand before him, we're not going to be able to argue our point because he knows every thought and every intention perfectly. He is perfectly discerning. He will make no mistakes. But friends, He is also the God who by His grace has given us this Word. This Word that penetrates to the very core of our souls so that He might give life to hardened hearts. When that living and active Word penetrates and discerns, suddenly we say to ourselves, this God is speaking to me. He's talking about me. That's what the author of Hebrews is doing, right? I mean, he's quoting from Psalm 95, which is talking about events that took place in Numbers 14 through 20, right? And he's saying, look, God is speaking to you. If you hear his voice today, don't harden your hearts. He's speaking to me. And not just that, but because that living and active, soul-penetrating Word so does this work in our hearts, so that um, as He does that, the thoughts and intentions that once were against Him have now been changed. 
They've been transformed. They've been made new. You've become alive, right? You've been renewed in ways that you cannot comprehend. At one point, you were dead in your sin. Now you are alive. You have been humbled. You have been changed. You have been enlightened. And this doesn't happen just at one point in your life, but every time you come to the Word of God hungry, eager to hear Willing for God to perform surgery on your heart. When we approach Scripture with a humble hermeneutic of submission rather than a haughty hermeneutic of suspicion, then it is not we who read Scripture, it is Scripture that reads us. Scripture untangles the human heart. And unearth sin like no other book can. It goes where only God can go. And it goes wherever God sends it. It does what no other book or religion or person could ever do. Not, not you, not anyone, not anything else. No other word can discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Only God's word can do that. And so it, it really comes back to what we've been called to throughout this entire warning. From chapter 3, verse 1, until now. Will you trust your soul to this perfectly discerning surgeon to do the good work to heal your heart through his word? Or, or will you harden your heart in unbelief? Because here's the thing. God's Word not only reveals God to us, this living and active, discerning and heart-penetrating Word also reveals us to God. And so God's living Word, second, perfectly exposes our hearts. God's Word reveals God to us and us to God. His revelation performs surgery on our hearts, revealing the inclinations of our souls, reconciling us either for death or for life. Verse 13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Friends, there are no secret or hidden sins from God. There's no place where you can run and hide from Him. There's no uncharted island that you can hide away at. There's no recess of your subconscious where you are safe from God. And that is true of everyone. No one gets to opt out because without this surgery, all will die. Whether you recognize it or not, you are already on the operating table without a sheet to cover your nakedness. That's just how exposed you are. And so often when the Word of God exposes us like that, we try to run for cover. We try to point fingers at other people. We try to excuse it away. Well, you know, my condition is not as bad as so-and-so's condition. We try to get mad at the nurse for handing him the tools, right? We fight to get off that table. 
Well, you can attempt to run, but you can't hide. You are naked on the table. That light is, is piercing and bearing down on you. The incision has already been made. You know it and you feel it. That separator thing has opened you up and laid you bare so that one What was once a closed abdomen is now an open chest revealing your heart in ways that you could never, ever see. And if you looked in that mirror of God's Word, put up there by that light so that you could could look and observe what's going on, you would see a dead, stony, cancerous heart unless God takes His scalpel to it. Refusing to look in the mirror of God's Word will not change that condition. It will only solidify it. You can get ticked off at the messenger, but the preacher is no more than a nurse handing the tools to the one who is performing the surgery. But if you look in that mirror provided by God's Word, you will see just how necessary that surgery is. Yeah, it may pierce, it may hurt, but it's necessary. Is it risky? Absolutely. But isn't every heart surgery? But it's worth it. Because as God cuts away at the evil, and at the unbelief, and at the rebellion, and at the disobedience, the thoughts and intentions of the heart that put him to the test, that that go astray, that reject his ways, that, that turn away from him. As God skillfully removes that which leads to death, the result is life. The result is joy. The result is peace and love and rest in Jesus. The result is salvation. You are naked and exposed on the table. Not so that he can rip you into pieces like some evil psychopath. He has you on the table to heal you, to give you life, to do his good work in you. And here's the thing. God already knows your heart perfectly. He already knows it. That word exposed there in Scripture, or or maybe it's laid bare depending on your, your translation, it's in the perfect tense, meaning he already knows. He already sees perfectly. He's not hacking you up so that he can see more and more and more and more of just how bad you are. Like with each Each stab, he's just like evil, wretched, vile, detestable, depraved, wicked, hating you more and more and more with every stroke of his blade. No, because he has already laid you bare. There's nothing left for him to see. You have already been completely opened up, completely exposed before the eyes of him to whom you must give account. There's nothing that you can let him in on that he doesn't already know. There's no secret that you can keep from him. There's nothing left 
for him to reveal. He's not going to go into that closet and be shocked. He's not going to browse your history and be appalled. He's not going to learn some secret that is going to change his mind about you, where he's going to just finally be so fed up that he's just going to say, forget it, I'm done with him. You've got to know that. You have already been laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so if that's the case, if he already knows my heart completely, if there is nothing left for him to see, if he knows my every past, present, and future sin, right, all of it is visible before him, my chest is opened up, then why does he do it? Why does he continue to cut Why does the word continue to pierce? Why does it continue to hurt? Why does it continue to expose? Why does it continue to offend? Why does he just leave me alone? Why peel back layer after layer? Friends, it is to reveal to us every thought and intention of our hearts. Scripture strips us bare before our own eyes as we look at that mirror. And as we do, we see His perfect character. We see His all-sufficient work. And we see the true nature of our own hearts better than we have ever seen it before. We see just how much we need Him to heal us. Just when we thought we had figured out, just when we thought we kind of arrived and we could begin to coast, we see more and more and more. We see that we're not discerning enough on our own. We're not good enough on our own. We're not fine on our own. But with each and every cut he makes like an onion revealing deeper layers of our hard-heartedness and unbelief which brings tears to our eyes. You know what he does? He applies the healing balm of the gospel. That light penetrates into that darkness It's just been uncovered. And the darkness will not overcome it. Christ's death for sin and His resurrection for life is what makes us whole. It's what heals the broken. It's what gives life eternal to those who were dead in their sin. It's as John Calvin said, it it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked on God's face and then descends from contemplating God to scrutinizing himself. And so this living and active word is at work, warning us not to harden our hearts in unbelief, but it implores us to trust him, to follow him, to take him at his word. This living and active word also holds out the promise 
The message of the good news that though we have been laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account, it does not have to result in eternal death. You can have eternal life. Not because you can keep God's word perfectly, but because God's living and active word is working perfectly in your heart. Discerning every thought and intention far better than you or anyone else ever could. Giving life that you can never gain for yourself. And so the question is, will you trust Him? Will you take Him at His word? Will you open yourself up to hear from Him? To be pierced by His word so that you might have life in His name? For those who rebel against God's word, they will be reckoned for death. But for those who trust in Christ, who trust in God's word, God gives eternal life. Though you are naked and laid bare before him, and he can see every sin, every thought, every intention of your heart, it's all out there before him. That living and active word says to us, Like he said to us back in chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, our faithful older brother looks us in the eye and he says to us, I'm not ashamed to call you brother. Not ashamed to call you sister. Receive God's word so that you may not fall into the same sort of disobedience that you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, so that you may not turn away from the living God. Though it pierces, it also heals. Hear His voice and trust Him, so that you may enter into His rest. And encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, with that healing salve of God's Word, because the living Word of God perfectly exposes our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for the the trust and the humility to lay down on that table and expose ourselves to the penetrating power of your word. Father, forgive us for all the ways that we have neglected it, that we have treated it as some ancient text, no more alive than anything else we would read. Lord, I pray that your word would be living and active in each of us. And as you pierce us, though at times it is unpleasant, it's uncomfortable, it's scary, I pray that we would not take our eyes off of you. That we would remember your goodness and faithfulness. The perfect work of your son. That we would be able to trust our souls to you and find life. To find peace. To find encouragement and grace and 
motivation and strength. I pray that we would find nourishment from your word. As you seek to do this work in us to heal our sickened hearts. God, do what only you can do. May we trust you for the results. And we, may we do so with confidence, not in ourselves, but in the perfect blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.